appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. And I think before we get started, we should not miss the gravity of that verse. Y'all see that? You not choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So I think before we go, let's just pray that, that the Father gives us this campus for the kingdom of God, right? I, I think this isn't like some Old Testament promise where we've got to be like, what's the historical, grammatical, Christocentric way of applying this? Jesus is just saying, whatever you ask, the Father's going to give it to us. So let's, let's pray. Let's pray he would do that, and then we'll, we'll work through this tonight. Father, I will never understand the the mystery of, of your sovereign will and how prayer works in that. I, uh, I guess we're just too limited uh, to understand how that can logically work its way out, God. But we are based on this promise. We ask that you would move at, at Marshall this academic year, that you would move in Huntington in such a way that people would say, as they did of the disciples in Acts, that, that these people are turning the world upside down. So, Father, I pray what you speak through your word tonight would set something in our hearts that we would not go on as business as usual for the rest of this week and this semester, but that our eyes would be open to what you are doing. And, Father, may we be found obedient to that. So, Father, we're asking in your son's name, because he died for us and rose again to give us access to, to you. So we pray you would do that. Amen. So as disciples of Jesus, if you've placed your faith in him and you have believed the gospel, there's something really, really deep that, that theologians have written volumes and volumes and volumes on. And it's, it's really a, it's a funny, simple concept that has deep implications, and that is the nature of our union with Christ. In, in some faith-filled, miraculous way, whenever you believed in Christ, you were united with him even talks about being united in the heavenly places. Somehow you died with him. Somehow you rose with him. And the implications of this, and I think we're going to see this in this passage, are, are huge for your personal life. It's, it's huge for you if you have relational difficulties right now. It's huge for you if you are trapped by, by some addiction or some emotional problem, depression, anxiety, whatever. Or if you're just in a, a stalemate with your spiritual life and you're just not even really excited about this semester. Somebody drug you here tonight. The implications of a abiding, united relationship with Christ are, are huge. And even more in this verse, we see that it's not just a choosing and appointing, but, but the point is you abide in Christ so that you would go. You see that? that that's where we get the, the biblical mandate for, for what we're trying to do here on, on Tuesday nights, is that you abide in Christ so that it overflows into an advancement of the gospel. You see that, right? Appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. God ultimately, and I think what he's wanting to do in this passage in particular, is to create a people, disciples of his, who abide in him, love him and others, advance the mission of showing his love to the world in order to bear fruit. And I hope we can convince you tonight, and just through the text, that 
in order to get there, we must understand this abiding. So if I had to say the goal of the next 25, 30 minutes, the goal is this. I want you to leave here loving Jesus more. I want you to know that he loves you. I want you to know that your call on your life because he loves you is for you to love him more. So the context of John 15, you can go back to verse 1 now. The context is interesting, and I need you to, if you're a note taker, write this down. This is after Judas had left to go start the betrayal process, right? This is, they're, they're gathering together, one of their, the last meals, last times hanging out as disciples, and, and Jesus, kind of probably in an awkward way, looks at Judas like, hey, go ahead and go do what you're going to do. And Judas like, all right, that's my cue, and gets out. The other disciples are thinking, now he's probably like, Judas was in charge of the money, maybe he had some banking things to do. But this John 15 passage comes after Judas has already left. So it's to the 11. And this is also after Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him. Keep those two things in mind as a framework. It's going to help this passage make sense. Is that it's after Judas has left, a disciple of Jesus, and it's after another disciple of Christ has already been said, you are going to deny me three times. So a denier leaves and a denier stays. If you look at verse 1, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now before we go on, I need you to understand this. This is a very intentional metaphor. It's not Jesus didn't just pick his favorite plant and say, I'm going to compare myself to a vine for this particular reason. Not at all. In in Isaiah chapter 5 and also Isaiah chapter 27, Oftentimes, God the Father, Yahweh, Israel, the God of Israel, will say, Israel, you are my vineyard. You're my, you're my vine, and I want you to go bear grapes of justice and righteousness and grace and power. Show the world my glory. And if you know the Bible at all, Israel fails at that over and over and over again. Oftentimes, God looks and he'll send another prophet to say, you were supposed to give me grace and righteousness and show my glory to the Gentiles, but instead... What you did was bring me back injustice and oppression of the poor. You never glorified me. You look like the other nations. So when Jesus comes in and says, I am the true vine, he's saying something huge. He's saying the purpose of the people of God, that Yahweh, that my father was trying to create, it's in me. The, the justice, the glory, the grace, the power that he's going to show the world. I'm the true vine and the father, my father, is the vine dresser. Now, when I first read this, I'm thinking, this is kind of weird because I know that God and God the Father and God the Son are one, so how does the Trinity work out in this? And I would encourage you not to always take every metaphor and run it down to its furthest conclusion. Okay, clearly Jesus has something here to show us about the nature of what a vine dresser does, showing us the specific role that God the Father has for us. So, All in all, before we get to exactly what the Father does, we have to know that the only true spiritual life-giving substance is in the vine of Christ. You're not going to thrive or grow or develop spiritually, either individually or as a group or as a church or as a ministry, if we do not see Jesus as the true and better. You see, Israel saw the call of God just to glorify me, and they worked up their own strength and tried to do it and utterly failed over and over and over again. Jesus, the true, true vine. So with that context, look at two through six here. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Now I'm the vine, and you are the branches. As we get our role here, Father, vine dresser, Christ, Son, the vine, we're the branches. And he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This has terrifying implications for us, right? Like, are, are we reading that with our, with our eyes open? We look, there's, there's cutting away, there's, there's life down in this vine, and, and we see that there's, if you're not bearing fruit, there's a cutting away, and the ones that don't bear fruit are getting thrown into a, a fire and a, and a bundling. And if you're careful reading that, you also see there that in verse 2, it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Right there, in, in me. We've got to deal with this. So in two through four, we see two functions of the vine dresser. So if you're taking notes, it would be good to write this down. The first function of what the Father does with his people, his branches, is he takes away those in him that do not bear fruit. Second function is he prunes those in him that do bear fruit so that they can bear more fruit. You see that in the text? It's, he's saying, look, everybody in me, if you aren't bearing fruit, he's cutting you off. And if you are bearing fruit, he's going to cut the bad parts away so that you can bear more fruit. And this passage in particular has caused theologians to go crazy. So many different camps looking at this. I'm going to explain the different views of what people think of this first function. So if you remember, the first function, the first function is taking away those in, in him that do not bear fruit. So some people would say this. This is what I grew up believing. Some would say that Jesus is teaching that people can lose their salvation because they are clearly in him, and because they do not bear fruit, the Father takes them away. So they're saying, look, it says in me. Everybody in me that does not bear fruit. So clearly our fruit-bearing, our Good deeds means that if we aren't doing this enough, and there's going to be at some point, the Father's going to look at this ugly, non-fruit-making branch and say, all right, I'm done with this. Not in my vine anymore. Some would say that the phrase take away there in verse 2 can actually be translated as lift up. So this would mean that the Father lifts up an unfruitful Christian because they are in Christ. And, and if I, mean, I don't know how many of you all tend vines, but I don't, and I had to look it up, but what vine dressers would do if you have a, a branch that's not doing well, they would actually lift up this branch to get it in a position where it can make fruit, or what it's supposed to do. So this view would say, it's not saying you lose your salvation, it's saying that it's not take away necessarily, it's lift up so that they would bear fruit. The third view would say this, some would say that there is a way in which someone can look like they are in Christ but when they, they prove they aren't by not producing any fruit, the Father takes them out to preserve the purity of his vineyard or his people, like Israel. Now, I can say with confidence 
at the first view is not right. I do not believe, and it's based on the rest of the book of John, specifically John 10, 28, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, no one snatches them out of my hand. So we, we can't, with being true to the whole text, the whole book, the whole context of the Bible, we can't say that there's this, in, this person who by faith believes in the death and resurrection of Christ is in the vine, but then doesn't do enough or doesn't feel the right things or is going through a hard time and never really gets to the next spiritual level, gets taken away. No one, no one that the Father saves gets snatched from Jesus' hand. So already be confident, right? Like some of you are like, if I have to base my vine bearingness on the fact that I've got to produce fruit, I may be snatched away, right? And I can confidently say with the scriptures backing this truth up is that no one snatches anybody that the Father saves out of Jesus' hand. It's got to be a different way of looking at it then, right? And I would say this as a takeaway of all of the you know, the controversy or whatever, I can say this. If you truly belong to Christ, he will not let you remain unfruitful. He will work and lift and convict and prune to keep you fruitful and keep you glorifying the Father because he is the one working in you. It's not your own doing anyways. You believe, like you got to believe that if you're going to abide in Christ and bear fruit this semester. We got to believe that Jesus is the one who saves and Jesus is the one who prunes and lifts and convicts and shapes so that you will bear fruit. It's his work and, and not ours, right? But also this, and this is probably a terrifying reality, and maybe even a group this big, it could be a present reality for us. There is a type of person who can look like they are in Christ and not really belong to him. This person has never truly repented. And believe in the gospel. And, and this is my story. I'm, I'm going into BCM as a freshman, kind of just taped to the vine, not, not grafted in. I didn't have a life-giving relationship, a hatred of sin, a, a fruit-bearingness about me. It was just, I'm in, I'm in, I'm around, right? And I, I think one of the best ways to exemplify this, and hopefully this, this clears it up for you, remember in the first part of our introduction, we talked about two people that, that were with Jesus, right? In John 13, Judas leaves, the denier of Christ. A couple, like a chapter later, Peter gets told, you're going to deny me. Both denied Christ. Both were looking like they were in Christ. Both were, honestly, I can't say I would do better in their shoes, but it was, it's pathetic, right? It's pathetic to betray the Son of God with a kiss, but it's even, I won't say more pathetic, it is, also pathetic, to not associate with Jesus in front of a little girl, right? That's what Peter did. He got scared and wouldn't associate, but there's something different. Here's the key. One of them was in Christ. One of them wasn't. Do you see that? One of them, even though they both associated with, they would both say, I'm in the vine. One of them had a life-giving ultimate desire for God to glorify them in their life so that, and I think these examples are there, so that whenever you go in your life and you have a bunch of Peter moments, if you truly have faith in Christ, knowing no one snatches you out of, the, out of Jesus' hand, you know you're a Peter branch and not a Judas branch. The Lord wants to continue demonstrating the cleanliness that talked about in verse 3 to the world through your fruit bearing. 
And ultimately, to make the point again, we can't do that without abiding in Christ. So get that first. You are eternally secure, faith in Christ, repenting of your sin, and the death and resurrection of Christ. But also, there is a way that you can kind of act like that's a reality of your life that never changes you. Because there's no life-giving relationship where Jesus can change you. If you finish the thought in verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. So there is a sobering reality for those of us. For people that never even try to act like they're in the vine. But even more so for those of us that think we are or just with our mouths confess it, but it never changes our hearts, never it's not, it's not a sinless perfection, but it is a, a hatred for sin. It's a desire, at least a desire to have a desire, to have a desire to glorify God. There is that abiding relationship in Him, and that's the eternal security a believer has. People who are not in that, clearly, from the text, branches are gathered, thrown into fire, and burned. So it brings two questions we've got to answer, right? If, if I can kind of look like I'm in Christ, but not really abide... And the first question is, how do you abide in Christ, right? That should be on the forefront of our minds. Or if we're not even close to accepting Jesus or loving Jesus or loving the things of God, then also the question is, how do you abide in Christ? And also the question is, what is bearing fruit, right? Because that's a spiritual metaphor. You hear a lot, but we have to actually dig in and see what this is. So we'll look at verse 7, hopefully get some answers here. Verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. There it is again, ask whatever you wish. And by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So by this, my Father is glorified, made much of, that you bear fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. First of all, I think it's worth pointing out that twice in this passage, Jesus says, ask whatever you want, and it will be given to you. Right? Once again, not an Old Testament promise we have to contextualize. This is, ask whatever you want. I think in this context, especially for those of you that are like, I haven't seen fruit. I haven't seen a God-glorifying action in my life for some time. I know that I trust in Christ. I know this. I know I'm in Him. But where's the fruit? Why am I not demonstrating this? Why am I being like Israel, a faulty branch or a faulty vineyard? I think it's fair to say that tonight you can ask Him. You can ask Him to do that. Whatever you ask in His name, in His will, in your Abiding, he will give to you. So we see in verse 7 that it's his words abiding, it's us abiding, it's him abiding in us, and ultimately we see, based on the promise that he does whatever we'll ask him, that this abiding ultimately shapes our desires to be his, and we're going to ask for what he wants, which will actually become what we want. 
Does that make sense? Like abiding in Christ, being close to Him, trusting Him daily, depending, not doing, making one move without a prayerful consideration. How am I going to glorify God in this? That this sin was dirty and evil. I don't I hate that. And even in my hatred of this, I can bring glory to God because He hates my sin. And ultimately your desires are shaped. And then He says, be free to ask whatever you want. That sin you can't get over, that person you can't reach, that fill in the blank. Ask. Ask and abide. It ultimately becomes the nature of our salvation, initially repenting and believing in the gospel to abide in Christ, but we don't grow beyond that gospel. It's, it's over and over again. It's repenting of sin, hating sin, believing that He's forgiven us, and moving on as He renews our wills to be like His. Now I want you to see something else that's really, really important in this. It says, By this... My Father is glorified. So the two things glorifies the Father. That you bear much fruit, and that you do this, and by, by your fruit bearing, you are proving that you belong to Him. So this sheds light on what it actually means to bear fruit. You need to write this down. Bearing fruit will be any thought, action, affection, emotional response that makes much of God, or any action that ultimately anybody looking at your life would say, that person belongs to Christ, right? You see that? By this my Father is glorified, that you bear fruit, and in that fruit bearing, you are proving to be a disciple of Jesus. So this is anything that is following after or being close to Jesus. It doesn't have to be a spiritual high that we're going for, like, man, what is abiding in Christ? How do I graft myself into this life-giving vine? It is simply knowing you should obey because He loved you first. Not, you don't obey to get accepted. You obey because you're accepted. And then even in that, you know, I'm not powerful enough, strong enough, devoted enough, even close to being holy enough to actually keep, keep this up. I need Him. And that's bearing fruit. It's bearing fruit in your life. You, you concentrate less on behave and more on behold. The Father that's already loved you first the outpouring of that is bearing fruit, so proving to be a disciple of Jesus. Because the point of this is all of this makes God look big and us look small, right? Israel wanted to, they could have had a desire to look different than the Gentile nations, but ultimately they didn't trust in the God that was doing this work in them. Just like us grafting ourselves in the true vine, Jesus, who perfectly obeyed the Father and grants us that righteousness so that we might want to obey. But also more than that, you guys see this. And some people hear this verse and they scream legalism, right? But, but Jesus clearly says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And even before that verse, He commands you to abide in the love. He's like, you need to do this, and here's how. Abide in my love, and if you want to do that, obey my commandments. So, we got a lot of commandments, obviously, in the Bible, and then you have, you know, their new new covenant application. You're full of practical ways that we live out this discipleship to Jesus. But ultimately, what it comes down to, keeping Jesus' commandments, is this: love God with all of your being, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? He says that. You want to abide in Christ? Love God with your whole being, and love your neighbor as yourself. Abiding in Christ. It's worth saying over and over again is obeying His commands to love Him 
from the heart, which implies that daily desperate dependence, that daily desperate abiding, and loving people, an overflow into tangible things that follow his commands. That's bearing fruit. And I love this because the very command of you've got to love God and love people in the way that Jesus says it implies it's because I've loved you first. It's not like he's holding this up and saying, all right, you love God enough and love people enough, then I'll graft you in, and then I'll tell you again to do this. He's saying, I've loved you. You believe in what I've done for you, demonstrating my love by my son on the cross and resurrection. And then from that acceptance, it overflows into a life that's loving God, loving people, hating sin. Look at verse 11. So all that being said, he says this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So if we had any doubt that Jesus was this slave master saying, you've got to love me more, you've got to do more, you've got to act this certain way, make sure your life at least looks like you're giving God all the glory. He says, if you are doing that, you're doing it wrong. Because I told you these things so that your joy would be, your joy would be full So these things, the vine and branch metaphor, glorifying the Father, bearing fruit, proving to be disciple, all of these things are written for our joy. But I want you to see something even bigger. That He says, not just that your joy may be full, as in you're going to get a nice religious experience really treating everybody nice and making people know that you belong to me. More than that, I'm telling you this abide in my love thing, so that my joy may be in you. It's a big difference between our joy being full. It's our, we have limited emotional capacities. Can we agree with that? Like we can get excited about, this is, man, me. I get excited about something like 10 times a day, 10 different things, and then I'm like just over it. Like played disc golf hard like 18 times a week, and now I don't even like it. It's just like that's my, I am all over the place. Like you give me red pepper hummus, I'll eat four tubs, and then now I don't like it. It's just, it's amazing. The, the limited capacities that we have as humans, and it's because we are created, or rather recreated when we abide in Christ, to have a joy that's otherworldly. It's not a joy that we can muster up and get there. We can't get happy enough to love God and love people. We need something that's not ours. We need something from Christ. So what is Jesus' joy? It's the eternal, perfect, life-giving relationship with the Father that sustains you in the deepest suffering and compels you to holiness in the most ferocious of temptations. We can prove this with with Hebrews chapter 12. Probably a familiar passage with some of you, but I want to highlight a specific part. Paul, or whoever, wrote this and said, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, it's a pruning process there, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, which is go bear fruit, go make disciples. Listen, looking to Jesus, not looking to self, looking to church, looking to how many different things you can involve yourself in, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
You see that? The joy that's available by your abiding, by your hating of sin and and pressing through this this tension of what does it mean to abide in Christ and the closer I get to Him, the more I realize I'm nothing like Him. The joy that Jesus had was one that was unshakable, energetic, and passionate about the ultimate good of people that He loved. That's why He could go to the cross because there was a joy set before Him. See that? I'm not making this up. For the joy, argument word there, it's a preposition, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Passionate about good, focused on the glory of God and missional in its thinking. Here's the cool part. It's not something you're earning up to. This is something that's already accomplished for you. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross and then quit halfway through. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross and stayed in the grave. None of that. It's the joy set before him, and it's the joy that he now has seated at the right hand of the Father. And he looks at you and says, you're not working to this. This is something I'm giving you. You want that? You abide. You'll know what abiding is? You obey. You're not obeying to get me. You've already got me. I'm telling you obey because you're going to get more of me, and you're going to see this joy. So how do these things intersect our joy? Let's work all the reverse logic here of this passage. Our joy is full when we obey by loving God and people while abiding in Jesus to prove we're disciples that glorify the Father, the same Father who's going to prune us of everything that keeps us from abiding, loving, and obeying, and ultimately from stealing our joy. That's the point. That's the point of abiding. It's not to say, just obey a bunch, and then you can have this mystical vine experience. It's not what he's going for. He says, I've got a joy with the Father. It caused me to endure the cross, despise shame, and now I'm seated. By faith, you can have that. And even more so, if you abide in me, the vine dresser is going to take away everything that's keeping you from having joy in me only. And some of you all that are anxious, depressed, misunderstood, not understanding what your role is this semester. Y'all need to hear that. If you're going through a trial, it's not on accident. The vine dresser didn't see an animal that eats vines come into the garden and he didn't go, oh man, I didn't see that there. It It didn't surprise him. Every trial sovereignly placed by this vine dresser because he knows you're depending way too much on something that is stealing your joy. And you need that joy if you're going to love God and love people. And that's what he's doing for you. It ends like this, the rest of the passage. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. If you do what I command you, I like to say here, it's not him saying, you're my friend only if you straighten up. He's saying, you're going to demonstrate your friendship with me by the way that you are obeying this command to love people. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. And you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide 
so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. And these things I command you, so that you will love one another. Our abiding will overflow into a love for each other that looks like the love that God has for us. Jesus shows that the best love is a love that lays down his life for his friends. And then he turns around and says, you're my friends. This is before the cross here, but you know, we've got to sometimes read the Gospels backwards, right? They have a point. Jesus dies and rises again. We can read this now knowing that and saying, I lay my life down for my friends. And you, Dustin, you're my friend. We get to abide in complete dependence on the best friend in the whole world. And that sounds cliche, but I'm hoping the weight of this text kills that in us, right? It's okay to say God's our friend. So, what, the, what does this friend do? And then we're going we're gonna to worship and celebrate him tonight. Ultimately, what he's going to do is if you have this abiding relationship with him, he's going to prune you so that you can bear more fruit and bring more glory to God and get this, more joy for you. And he's going to do this so that you're not destroyed. <laughs> it's an implication in verse 6. You don't abide in Christ, you're burned. Even more so, because we're friends and not just servants, we know what the Father is doing right now. And we're rescued to be a part of his great mission in our current context at Marshall University, fall of 2017. This wasn't an accident. It shows you. You read it, right? It shows you for a reason, to bear fruit. Why? Because bearing fruit is obeying in Christ, which is abiding in Christ, which gives him glory and you joy. We were chosen to go. We're chosen to be loved. And then he proved his love by laying his life down for us. He laid his life down to take the punishment for all the reasons that we deserve to be bundled and burned. You guys know that, right? Don't read verse 6 and think, really glad I love God enough to not be in that crew. Right? On your own, the best you can do is just tie yourself to the vine. You can't be grafted in. That's by faith. We should have been bundled and burned, but instead the Father lifted up. Jesus from the grave to give life to all of us who will believe and abide in by him in faith or completely trust and repent of our sin to be one with him and don't just stay there don't just stay in that spiritual marvel it's okay if you want to spend a night doing that that's okay but then tomorrow realize the point of this is so that you would go bear more fruit even weirder that your fruit would abide that's another lesson for another day and a guy way smarter than me to explain it alright so what is this going to look like? All of this together, if the, the worship, I was about to say band, but the worship duo want to come on up. I want you to, this is going to be our prayer. And remember, we're allowed to ask whatever, whatever. And I think it's fair to say we should be asking for ways to bear fruit so we can get joy and God can get glory, right? So what's it going to look like for 40-some, whatever, people to go into an abiding relationship with Christ into this semester on mission. It's going to look like a people with a joy that is unfazed by suffering, with a love for God that continually changes your desires from sin to holiness, and with a love for people that shows the glory of the vine who laid down his life for the branches so that we might have the most joy in him. So let's, let's pray and once again ask God, for the campus, for the city. If we abide and bear fruit, we apply this. He says he's going to do whatever, whatever we ask. So let's pray before we sing.